Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Hearing none, then I want to tell you about um, our reading from Luke's gospel, because it makes me think of something that is not Luke's gospel. It makes me think of the movie The Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, yeah, follow my lead for a second here, right? Because you know The Wizard of Oz, right? Judy Garland, red slippers, click your heroes three times, there's no place like home. Um, in the scene where Dorothy meets the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, it's uh, the exact opposite of what our reading is today. It's sort of similar, but it's opposite. Because what happens is Dorothy meets the great Wizard of Oz, and what does she see? She sees fire and smoke and tremendous imposing architecture, emerald green. And the smoke changes colors in front of her and there's thunder and the wizard's voice is booming, right? I am the great and powerful Oz. And she sees this massive head projected before her as if this being is so powerful it doesn't even need a body. And so she stands there before the Wizard of Oz with her friends, right? The Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, her dog Toto, and they're terrified. Uh, when they meet the Wizard of Oz, they're, real, they're shaking in their slippers, so to speak. And so they're standing before this great power, uh, and they are terrified. But later on in the film, we discover that the reality of who the wizard is is maybe not so imposing, right? Because when they go to meet the wizard again, having defeated the Wicked Witch, Um, Toto recognizes a pair of patent uh, leather Oxford shoes behind a curtain off in the corner of the room. And what does he do? He runs over and pulls back the curtain. And we discover that the Wizard of Oz is not really uh, the Wizard of Oz. He's a carnival barker from Kansas whose hot air balloon was diverted by a tornado. Um, So this curtain was pulled back and this great and powerful Oz is actually weak and ordinary. He is not uh, this great and powerful wizard. He's just a carnival barker from Kansas, a kindly old man whom Dorothy says, you are very bad. And so he goes from being scary and powerful to ordinary and weak. But in our reading today, Peter, James, and John are going to see the exact opposite. They're going to see someone who looks sort of ordinary and weak, but they're going to see he's actually very powerful and very scary indeed. Um, it's similar, but it's the opposite. Peter, James, and John uh, are Jesus' three sort of top disciples, and they take a retreat together on a mountaintop. Um, it's been a long season of preaching and teaching and healing the masses, and Jesus has just begun to introduce to his disciples the reality of his death and resurrection. He's just told them that the disciples have confessed, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, 
We believe you're the Messiah, the one God appointed to save Israel. And Jesus has just started to explain to them, I'm going to die and rise again. That's how I'm going to save Israel. Um, and so they're on retreat up at the top of this mountain. And um, in, the, in the midst of sort of a, a, um, a midnight prayer, Jesus, um, the curtain is r- rolled back. And Jesus, while he's praying, begins to transform. You see him turn from a Galilean rabbi of some regional notice into uh, uh, what Matthew's gospel says, uh, a, a light as bright as the sun. And his clothes turn bleach white in a time where there was no bleach. And he becomes this recognizable and yet fundamentally different figure. And not only that, but two other figures come to speak with him, the great figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They come to Jesus, and they're talking about Jesus' plan to die and rise again. And though Peter confesses that at first they are drowsy, they are full asleep. They have all fallen asleep, and they awake to the scene. The scene is so powerful and so unexpected that they wake up fully. They are shocked at what they see, because what was ordinary and weak and human, Jesus, the Rabbi Messiah, has become scary and powerful. Jesus of Nazareth appeared to be ordinary and weak, but he is not. The curtain has been pulled back. And we see Jesus for who he truly is. Um, It's true in this gospel, right? And it's true in Matthew's gospel, too. um, That Everyone has already confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. They say, you are the Christ, Jesus. Um, And now, of course, we have the law and the prophets testifying to the same thing. um, That Jesus' Christness, his Messiah, his anointing, his mission from God, who he really is, gets to be revealed. It is a glimpse of behind the curtain of reality. And look, let's acknowledge, this is a, not your average Bible story. I once tried to teach this Bible story. I had been a Christian for like four months, and all I could teach at a vacation Bible school uh, class with this story was, Jesus turned white and was like a light bulb. Isn't that cool? The end. Um, I didn't know what to do with this story when I first became a Christian, and maybe that's for you as well. This is not something we see in a lot of places in the Bible, Jesus lights up. Men uh, who are dead are seen again. Um, a cloud, this embodiment of the Holy Spirit or God's glory, comes and shuts the whole thing down. Uh, the closest we have to this story is um, something that takes place in our reading from Exodus today, where, goes, where Moses is meeting with God uh, and the law is being given. And the text says that Moses, um, after he spent time with God, his face lit up. Like a, like a luminescent sunburn of some sort. Um, I can't imagine what that looked like, but it was enough that it freaked people out, and they said, Moses, like, your face is bright. Put on a veil, please. And so he does. He has to put on a veil to keep the light. But, um, you know, there's nothing like that in our world. We don't see that. Maybe the closest we could think of is, you ever put a flashlight by your fingers and see the light pass through your fingers, and your, your fingers start to light up like hot coals, orange coals, or... When I was a kid, we would put a flashlight in our mouth, and our cheeks and our sinus cavities would, would glow red and orange from the, from the flashlight. And, and that was nothing. It was sort of this tiny version, maybe, of what Moses could have looked like. Matthew's Gospel, again, says that Moses' face was, um, was excuse me, um, Matthew says that Jesus' face was as bright as the sun, but 
Moses, of course, this was something different. Um, he had a shiny face, but after a while, it began to cool off, like a coal that had been lit that has been burning down, or a hot metal that had been put into a forge um, that had pulled out and returned from its bright white, yellow, red heat to its original color. And so uh, Moses and Jesus are different experiences. Moses, he reflects the light that was given to him when he was in the presence of God. But Jesus himself is, is giving off the light as its source. And so what we have here are these great mythical ideas like glory and heaven and, and light. And it makes sense, you know, Jesus in, in the book of Revelation, St. John says that there will be no need for a sun or moon or stars in heaven because Jesus himself will be the light uh, that which everything is revealed and everything is seen, uh, that he will be the source of that light. And we get a glimpse of it today in this gospel reading. Once the curtain is pulled back, we understand that we shall see Jesus as he truly is in all of his glory, white and sun-faced, when the world will be fixed and all things will be made well. One of the most famous pieces of writing to come from the um, author C.S. Lewis was his sermon titled The Weight of Glory. Um, and it's this very idea, right, that there exists in this world, the world that we can see um, as it is with our five senses and our, our three dimensions and our 85-some years of living. There's that world, but there is something beyond this world as well. And that we human beings are not just sort of um, capable of seeing it, but it's something that's so big and transcendent we prefer not to. This is one of his most famous paragraphs from this essay. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and eros and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says that there's something so profound and great out there, um, and there are clues all around us if we just look at them, but we prefer to ignore them. That the curtain exists and there is something beautiful and better on the other side, but we are content with the things of this world in such a way that make us um, half-hearted creatures. And Lewis says there are things out there that should clue us into these greater realities of life. He points to examples like nostalgia, a longing for a time when there was only love, and romanticism, a time um, when there is sort of directed love and you feel that euphoria, and um, adolescence, a time when it was okay to be small and be looked, at, but, uh, looked after by someone who was higher than you. Uh, Lewis says that those things all point to a divine reality that is outside the scope of time, beyond the curtain. The thing which we see when Jesus uh, transfigures uh, on that mountain. Um, those are some ways that we see behind the curtain. I, for one, agree with Lewis, and I think another way that this is true is um, through prayer. Um, and the fact that prayer exists. We talked about some of this this morning in our Christian ed class. Uh, we talked about how um, it's not just Christians who pray, right? Everybody prays. You can be um, the whirling dervish, uh, Sufi Muslim, and you can pray by spinning around and using dizziness to empty yourself of your own thoughts so you can connect with the divine. And you can pray um, by engaging in the special Muslim prayer in which your knees and your elbows and your hands hit the ground. 
You can pray um, by spinning the prayer drum, the big cylindrical drums that you'll see the Buddhists will walk by and they'll spin it. And whatever prayer is carved onto that drum, when it is spun, that prayer gets thrown out into the universe. And so you spin the drum and you spin it again and again as a symbol and a token of, of your prayers. But the reality is, is, is we human beings, um, we all pray. We've always prayed, in fact. People who don't pray are in the minority. Human beings pray. They have for such a long time. In fact, the oldest piece of writing we have in human civilization, if you do the archaeology, what you discover is that the oldest piece of writing we have is a tablet um, where uh, the ancient Sumerians had written hymns and prayers to a god that they sang as they approached their great ziggurat temple for worship. Um, everyone prays, and anybody who prays recognizes that there's something beyond the veil. There is some greater, higher power at work in the universe. And what we see in our reading today is that that universe is real. And Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of it. Even in our secular age, um, the dominant belief of our time, that the world is all there is. That is what is uh, the dominant thought of secularism. And still people are praying. In 2004, Pew did a survey about prayer, found that 30% of people who said they had zero belief in God, about 30% of, of them said they pray sometimes. And about 17% of them said that they pray frequently or regularly. So you're talking about 47%, you know, almost 50% of people who say they have no belief that a divine uh, curtain exists and there's anything else in the world, they still pray. Um, make what you want of that, but um, humans have for generations tried to reach beyond the veil to see who is really in control of the world. And they've sacrificed goats, they've made offerings, they've done works of charity, they've denied themselves the pleasures of life, they've conquered and killed, and they're trying to prove themselves worthy of getting a glimpse behind the curtain. But while everyone is trying to do that, about 96 miles north of Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, they get the curtain pulled back, and they stand amazed looking at the light of the world. Our intuition, of course, is that after Peter, James, and John meet Jesus on the mountaintop, Maybe they'd want to stay up there. Maybe they'd want to stay up there. In fact, that's what Peter proposes, isn't it, right? Uh, Peter says, hey, this is great. We have this reality that there is more to the world. We've got Jesus and we've got Moses and Elijah. Let's, 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 let's hunker down. Let's build some tents. Let's get together and make this permanent. Be a great holy site. Everyone in the world will come and see that our God is real and that his servants are here. And, uh, you know, it gets shut down pretty quick by the Holy Spirit, of course. But who can blame him for thinking such a thing? After all, when the curtain is pulled back like that, and we get a glimpse of eternal realities, of course you'd want to stay there. But instead, the curtain closes, the mountaintop experience ends, and Jesus remains. He is not swept up in a chariot. He does not stay on the other side of the curtain, but Jesus remains. And then the next morning after they finish sleeping, they all come down from the mountain together. What we discover is that after the curtain closes, Jesus comes down the mountain and he goes back to his normal ministry. Demons are expelled, the sick are healed. There are still preaching and teaching for Jesus to do. I wonder what it might look like for you to understand today through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
that Jesus is still with us now, on this side of the curtain. He has gone, of course, to go and prepare a place for us on the other side of the curtain, when the revelation of all things being made correct in the world again, when that finally comes to pass, there is a place for us there. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is even now with us. That Jesus is working in the realm of the five senses and the three dimensions and the 85 years. So what mountains have you been climbing lately? What mountains have you come down from? What valleys do you find yourself in? Does the calculus change for you and for those around you if you realize that humans exist in this plane and that heaven is on your side in this plane and that the heavens are your ultimate destination but Jesus is with you even right now? What might that look like? I'll close with this observation. Many of us have been wrestling with what's been happening in Ukraine this week, right? The first land war in Europe in 70 years. It's it's unsettled for me, and I, I imagine it has been for many of you as well. And one of the war reporters covering um, the war this week uh, spoke about how earlier um, this week, she's in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, and all she heard at night was the sound of air raid sirens and church bells. Those are the only two sounds she heard. Everyone else had hunkered down. Everyone else had found shelter. On the streets of Kiev that night, there were only two sounds, air raid sirens and church bells. Church bells, of course, are a reminder that God is not aloof from your hardships, the hardships of your life, even the hardest hardships, like war. The Greek gods, you see, would flee back to the mountaintops as soon as they could. They hated being on the mortal plane. Good luck and Godspeed, but if you need me, I'll be on Mount Olympus. The Buddhist and the Hindu communities in Ukraine, well, they would tell you that death is inevitable, and that we only compound our suffering by trying to escape it. Accept the suffering that's coming, and be cleansed of your desire to escape the inevitable, and you'll find peace in your situation. The Sumerians would tell you to flee to the temple of God and say your prayers, and the atheists would tell you to quit your magical thinking and deal with reality as it really is. And yet, it's the church bells that are ringing in Kiev. The church bells remind us that Jesus walks the streets of Kiev along those who ask for his grace and providence. He is there among the huddled masses taking shelter in underground metro stations. He is there among the soldiers terrified for their lives. He is there with the injured and the dying in the hospitals, and he is there among those striving to make peace. The church bells ring in Kiev. They ring because Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He did not stay up there. Had he stayed up there, the only sounds in Kiev would be air raid sirens. But he didn't just come down from the mountain to the streets of Kiev. He went lower instead. And as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, he descended not just from the mountain to the plain, to the Kievs of life. He went so low that he even took on the cross and went to hell as well. Wherever we are, friends, he will go with us until he eventually calls us home. I bring this news to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Lay down in green. Broken the keys. Fell on that day. First born of 
Tiffany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.